guys at Glove and a Coke Bottle Podcast. He's Thomas Todd. He's Danny Zarchi. And he's also Bill Zarchi, my dad. How you doing? Hello. Good, good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Sure. And, uh, you know, what? something we all have in common is we're Giants fans. And we all wrote a book. <laughs> right. So uh, uh, we're here today, we're, and we're going to do our normal pod. We're going to talk about the last week of Giants baseball. And we're going to talk to my dad about his book, Finding George Washington, A Time Travel Tale, uh, a book that he published that uh, has to do with George Washington coming to the 21st century and becoming a Giants fan. And uh, we're going to get into a lot more detail about that later. Um, I've read it. Thomas has read it. My, my dad wrote it and read it. So we're, we're very excited about this. We keep calling <laughs> it a book, Danny. It's a novel. It's a memoir. <laughs> the memoir, memoir would what, have happened. What might have been, yeah. 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 But anyway, let's. So we are going to get into that. We're very excited. Um, so you're a Giants fan. Uh, obviously, you decided to write this book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your your baseball fan bona fides? Well, I was a Dodger fan growing up in Brooklyn until age 10 and when they deserted us, at which point I was bereft. I went, recall going to my Little League game when I was 10 years old and he, hearing from a giant, a, a, a Dodgers executive that the Dodgers and Giants um, were in fact moving to California and were going to change the the only three-team major league market into a one-team market. I didn't know who to root for, for for a long time, but there was only one team left, and that was the Yankees. This was a long time before the Mets started, and I actually became a Yankee fan for quite a while in the, the Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris era, which was a very, very exciting time to be a Yankee fan. Yeah, I would say, you know, being where we are now, knowing that you are a Dodgers and then a Yankees fan, uh, <laughs> You know, it's almost inexcusable, but you got to watch Mickey Mantle. So, you know, I can't hold that against you. This is news to me, Danny. This is news to me. I think stop the pod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I come from tainted uh, baseball, baseball stock. I had a lot of baseball cards and I, I am sure I had a Mickey Mantle rookie card, uh, which, which and my mom threw out all all the baseball cards. Uh, when, when my parents moved from the house I grew up in. I was on a, a, uh, a webinar with a bunch of old college friends recently. We've been doing a lecture series. And we, uh, we did a whole series, a whole episode on baseball. And every single person in, in, in uh, on the call, like 10 or 12, said that they had a great baseball collection, baseball card collection, until their mother threw them out when they, when they moved from the, from the house they grew up in. There is a card store in Cooperstown, New York, about a block from the Hall of Fame that says in the window, we have all the cards your mother gave away. <laughs> and so see, I, I, my, keep, I keep looking. My mother failed to throw out all of my sports cards, but did one day uh, as I approached, uh, you know, adulthood at, at the age of 30 uh, and said, hey, come pick these up or I'm throwing them out. And so uh, I've got them. I've, I've been there. <laughs> Turns out I don't want them. You know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, my, my I have all my, I have all my old baseball cards. I have my magic cards, my comic books. You know, it turns out like at, after you reach the point where your parents refuse to store them, I don't want to store them either. So it becomes a little more excusable. But uh, I'm, I'm sad that that Mickey Mantle rookie card isn't going to be part of my inheritance, or you know, well, the million dollars it would have been worth. When we visited Cooperstown, I actually bought a Mickey Mantle rookie card 
replica, uh, which which sits on my uh, file cabinet in the back here. I'm very proud to have that. It's one of, my, one of my only early relics. But you have to understand, we didn't value baseball cards at the time. We would we would attach them to the spokes of our bikes with clothespins so that so that the bikes go went as we rolled along, and we thought that was the coolest thing going. The idea that one of those cards could be worth even dollars, much less hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars was something that was really foreign. Just didn't, never thought that far ahead. Yeah, we didn't have the same opportunity with our Razor scooters, Danny. There was nowhere, <laughs> there's there no spokes. No spokes. Um, it's, I, I think a Mike Trout rookie card just got auctioned for like six figures. It's, it's weird because I wouldn't think that like, I mean, Mike Trout's, still a young man you know it's not like mickey mantle but uh yeah like the market has exploded and and i don't know if i have any valuable cards i i kind of just want to like give them to somebody and say if you can get any money for this give me back like 25 percent of it but um no that's crazy okay so so you rooted for the yankees and then uh and then you moved to California, obviously, at a certain point. Did you watch baseball all through that time, or when did you kind of pick it back up? Uh, I, I I didn't pick it up for about probably ten years after I moved moved here. I was uh, in the '60s. I was not into sports at all. I was more into um, other pursuits that were typical of the times. And uh, I you can just say drugs. It's okay. <laughs> I was into drugs. <laughs> <laughs> And just have, and generally having a good time. I mean, I wasn't a hardcore druggie, but I, you know. You were a hippie. I, early, early in my career, I did a lot of work for Channel Two in Oakland. And one day, they sent us to the A's locker room in Oakland to interview Billy Martin, who was the manager of the A's at that time, uh, and was also the Northern California chairman of the Jerry Lewis Telethon. But the Telethon was on a weekend when the A's were out of town, so we shot a. Billy Martin talking to the camera, giving giving a statement, and he had a a uh, reputation for being really pugnacious and really annoying. And uh, the producer I was with was tall, female, slender, and blonde, and he really really liked working with her. And he gave this really sweet, heartfelt statement about how give your money, give it for the kids. The kids really need this, and we were both very moved. And after the uh, interview with Billy. We went out into the stands and we didn't have tickets, but I had a big TV camera, I had a video camera and nobody stopped us from sitting. The place was maybe a quarter full and we just sat down in the stands, the producer and I, and we watched the game and I thought, this is really fun. And I'd been to maybe one baseball game in my life. My parents were not a, not into attending sports events. And when I said, gee, I'd like to go to a Yankee game, my dad would always say, oh, you know, there's so much traffic and stuff like that. You'll probably never get there. And I grew up with the with the feeling that sporting events were things that were unattainable, that you, you actually couldn't actually get there, no, no matter how long you drove. And here I was, 20 minutes from home, in an in a almost empty stadium. So I took my wife, Danny's mom, a couple of nights later, and we sat really close to this to the to the field, and we had a tremendous time. And I realized that the perspective that you get in the game is so different from what you see on TV because you you can look at anything. You're not directed. Your attention's not directed. And I remember we were sitting right near first base, uh, and the which was where the uh, the A's home side was. And whoever the pitcher was, there was a man on first, and he threw the pitcher threw three times over to first base to, to hold the runner. And they were all really soft tosses. And Mom said to me, 
why is he even bothering to do that with those soft tosses? He's he's never going to catch the runner. And then before he, get, he threw a pitch, the fourth toss, the first was really fast and on a on a, a kind of quick pitch motion, and he nailed the runner. And that's when we both went, "Oh, this is cool. We're right close to the action, and we can see things, you know, because we could watch the runner. We weren't diverted by the TV directing us to watch the batter or the pitcher. And it was it was it was really a wonderful revelation." There's strategy in this game. There's strategy. There's the head game, which I talk about in the book a bit. The head game, especially between the pitcher and catcher, and the cat and mouse game of trying to set up the set up the batter to ex- uh, to expect a particular kind of pitch. Yeah, I mean, I remember growing up. I feel like I we were watching baseball uh, from birth. Uh, I don't know, hundred plus A's games, hundred plus Giants games a year. I, I don't know exactly when that started, but I mean, uh, while you were while you were while Mom was in labor with you, okay, we had the, <laughs> we had the TV on. Yeah, so I I don't remember ever not watching baseball, but um, obviously I've kind of. Watched? Obviously, I've migrated a bit more toward Giants than A's, but uh, yeah, but I mean, we watched both of them. Remember the doubleheaders? We would watch A's if the A's and Giants were playing at different times, so we would watch one and then watch the other. I, I remember those well. <laughs> it was a lot of baseball. This is, you know, pre DVR, so we just right. watched, we'd watch what was on. Right. That's right. Snacks. Snacks are important. Yes. Snacks. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, anyway, um, well, uh, the Giants are doing well this season. Uh, it's very, very fun to talk about. And it's nice to have you here to, to, to talk about this season um, because I know that you can appreciate, you know, them finally doing well after after years and years of not winning the World Series. I mean, it's been almost a whole decade, if you can imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, some teams go like more than this without winning a World Series. I can't even Did- imagine Danny, isn't it every seven years there's no cell in your body that's the same as it was seven years prior? Oh, is that is that right? The, the, like the 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 ship Theseus, uh, but the human edition. Yeah, so so technically, no cell in Buster Posey's body has won a World Series. <laughs> well, and yet he still gets credit. He still gets credit. So that's what it took like. was for his hip to completely recycle, and now he's good again. I think that was it. Yeah. Solved it. So we recorded last weekend uh, and last Sunday. Today is Sunday, June 13th, and we're here to check in. Um, Since last week, we had uh, the Giants had a series with Texas and uh, just finished up today a four game series with the Washington Nationals. Um, Thursday's game was rained out. So we had Friday, a doubleheader on Saturday, and then a game this morning. Thomas Thomas actually predicted it correctly. I thought they were going to go four and two. Thomas, sorry, Siri wanted to be involved in this episode, but uh, uh, she she's not she's not going to be on this podcast. Um, I thought they'd go four and two. Thomas predicted three and three. As usual, Thomas was right. Um, the Giants split it with Texas, and they split it. They split a two game series with Texas, and they split a four game series with Washington. Uh, You're carrying the lead here, Danny. Yes, tell, tell us tell us what lead I'm burying. Giants score three runs in four games. Yes. Win two. <laughs> when well, you know has what, that ever happened? You know what they say: all you have, all the starting pitcher has to do is hit a home run and throw a shutout, and pretty good chance you're going to win. 
<laughs> I think Clayton Kershaw did that to us at least once. Um, so yeah, the, the, the two Texas games, uh, Giants won a nine, four win, um, relatively unremarkable. I mean, except for a very, very nice game to watch and win. Um, they lost the second game on a walk-off. And then as Thomas was, was mentioning the four game series against the nationals, the bats went completely dry. Um, the, the Giants scored one run on Friday night. It was a Buster Posey uh, solo home run, but thankfully they they won because Anthony DiScofani threw a complete game shutout with eight strikeouts. They won one nothing. In the Saturday doubleheader, the Giants scored zero runs in the first game and two runs in the second game and went on to win the second game 2-1. And then in today's game, the Giants lost 5 nothing and... Um, I don't even remember them having a runner on third if uh, they had a couple doubles, but the, the offense just looked completely, completely gone. Um, thoughts? <laughs> Bill, you want to start us off as our guest? Well, uh, they did hit the ball hard. I mean, uh, uh, Talkman had a, had a ball that uh, looked like it had been caught and they determined that it was trapped on a, a ricochet off the wall. Uh, I'm trying to remember who got the other double. Uh, yes. It, it was a pretty good, yeah. Johnny Cueto was not in his good game at all. Uh, probably his worst start of the year. And, uh, but the bats were nowhere. No, no, you know, Buster's been having a tremendous season and let's hear it for old guys. Uh, uh, Posey, Longoria and Crawford, who are, are they all in contract years? I know Crawford and, and Posey are. Longoria's sure got another year. Is another year, yeah. and they, but they're all you know 33, 34 years old, and they're all having tremendous ancient Longo's, Longo's on the, the the IL right now. Well, they do feel ancient. I mean, think about you know you see f- footage of Buster Posey when he first came up, and he's this smooth-faced kid, and now you look at him, and he's 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 got got a lot of gray in his beard and gray in his hair. And when did that happen? I mean, who, who let these people grow up? <laughs> well, he's got four yeah. kids, you know. Yeah. Two sets of twins. Yeah, exactly. So something we, I mean, something we've talked about before, but is worth mentioning. The Giants are having a tremendous season. Um, I'm looking at ESPN's uh, um, stats, and I don't know if this includes today's games, but um, for these purposes, it doesn't really matter. So I think this is coming into today. The Giants. Um, had the uh, were tied for the second best win percentage in the majors. Uh, only the Rays have a better win percentage. Um, and then uh, if you look at um, the ESPN has something that they call the relative power index, which is 25% is the team's winning percentage. 50% is the opponent's average winning percentage. And then 25% is the opponent's opponent's average winning percentage. Andy, so what kind are you of, talking about? No, I, I just discovered this and I like it. It's So it's kind of a strength of schedule metric. Uh, it's kind of an, a win-loss adjusted by strength of schedule. And the Giants are tied for fourth um, behind the Rays, Astros, and White Sox. They're tied with the Blue Jays. Um, and if you look at, uh, and then if you look at, um, Pythagorean win loss, which is a, a metric based on runs scored and runs allowed, the giants are, uh, so again, coming into today, the giants had a 40 and 24 record and their Pythagorean win loss was 40 and 24. 
So basically what all these metrics are saying is that the Giants are doing well. And it's not just a, met- it's not just a function of winning games they shouldn't be winning or uh, an inflated record. They're, they're a good team and their wins have been well-deserved. Well, look, here's what somebody who actually watched the games would say, as opposed to <laughs> who, who looked up what a bunch of wonks did on the internet. Uh, they played four games in three days. Every guy on the roster got a chance to go to the plate. Everybody got a chance to get some significant playing time. And they all did nothing. Um, the team is very reliant on home runs. We've learned that they are absolutely mashing their top four in major leagues in home runs. Uh, but they're not driving in runs other ways. Uh, and that's going to be an issue, if not the issue, uh, other than a, a potentially leaky bullpen. Uh, going forward are they able to score runs in different ways when the ball's maybe not jumping out of the stadium or guys aren't locked in yeah so let me let me you trying to find some more numbers you gonna find some more numbers i am let let me put this a different way uh the giants are ninth in baseball in runs scored which is pretty good but um and on that list along with them are the Astros, the Dodgers, the White Sox, who are great, Red Sox, Rays, Reds, Angels, Blue Jays. Okay. But then you look at who's allowed the fewest runs, and the only team that I just mentioned that's also on that list is the White Sox. Uh, The only team that's ahead of the Giants on that list is the White Sox. The Giants are third in fewest runs allowed. So not only have the Giants done a good job of scoring, but they're pairing it with good pitching, which – uh, other teams on this list have not done a good job of it. The Astros are not having as good of a season because uh, they're giving up a ton of runs, uh, stuff like that. So, so what you're saying is according to the metrics, the Giants are one of the most, if not the most well-rounded team. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, they, they have not, like we've watched those seasons where they had a super elite, ridiculously elite pitching staff, but, you know, but couldn't hit. That was 2011, right? And then we've seen those seasons where all their homegrown outfielders came up and hit 25 home runs apiece. No, that never happened. Wait, no, that may, maybe that's something you could write about in your next hypothetical novel. <laughs> what's, the, what's a homegrown outfielder, really? I mean, and, and also, I would, I would, I would say that ninth out of thirty uh, offensively is not that great. I mean, being second or third and you know fewest runs allowed, that's terrific, but. Ninth, you know, so they're in the top third of, you know. I, I think that's pretty good for not having a DH and playing an Oracle. I think that's pretty good as for raw run total go, especially for a team that even in its three championship seasons didn't have uh, a blistering offense or uh, games where they often scored seven, eight or nine runs. So, um, I mean, I, I feel pretty good about where the team is at. This is where I thought the team would be at. Like I said, they were going to go three and three in the series. They haven't played half as well on the road. Uh, as they've played at home, they've played significantly more games on the road than they have at home, uh, which is a good sign for the team going forward. Uh, right. They're eight, I believe, eighteen and uh, eighteen and nine uh, at home, which is a spectacular record. Um, but there were a few things I did want to point out. Uh, I did not realize this. This was pointed out to me by uh, Eric Nathanson of Torturecast. The Giants have lost seven times in walk-off fashion. <laughs> And have yet to win in that very fashion. So no walk-off wins, seven walk-off losses. I think that explains some of the uh, demoralization of the fan base, even as the team is in first place. Those and are and yet, to watch. And yet, that seems like a good thing. I mean, I don't think 
0 for 7 in games decided in the last play is sustainable. I think that's something that'll even out toward the rest, you know, toward the end of the season. It's probably a function of having a below average bullpen. Um, right. Well, and also but, play, playing, playing more games on the road and they've right. won most of their games at home. You don't need to walk off if you win, you know, if you're lot, leading yeah. going into the ninth. So um, that was what I pointed out that they haven't had quite the opportunities and that those wins don't count for any more than any other style of win. So. And kind of by definition, a walk-off means that you didn't get blown out. So, I, I mean, you're in it to the very end. And as demoralizing as it is, I'd rather take, I'd rather be ahead or tied going into the ninth than losing going into the ninth. And like, like today, five down five nothing. Right. Yeah. Today was not a walk-off. It just sucked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here's another walked off, but not the same thing. Here's another thing in the series against the Nats. Uh, two of the runs they did score of the three were in, and I'm putting huge quotes around these extra innings because it was the eighth inning of the second game of the doubleheader. The only way they got runs was with starting with a runner on second base. Let's just do. Let's just add that rule into every inning. Oh, we're gonna completely flip our position of yeah. it's the worst rule in baseball to let's start every inning with the <laughs> slowest guy on the team on second base. Or just serving right. the bases loaded. I would which be fine with that. Which is the worst rule in baseball, the seven-inning doubleheader or starting with a runner run? So I, that, that's the inning rule. I personally do not particularly mind the seven-inning no, doubleheader rule, but I hate the extra-inning runner on second rule. And I personally don't like to agree with Danny, but I absolutely concur with Danny. Uh, I, I, I attended enough uh, minor league doubleheaders, seven innings each. It didn't seem to be a problem. They felt like baseball games. But it does not feel like baseball because how did the guy get on second? You I, I swear. earn your way there. Every time, I, every time I, I've watched a game that went into extra innings, I look up and I see, oh, wait, how did Casale get on second? Was there a double that I missed? And then and then my brain catches up. You're like, oh, right, the rule. And in the next inning, you know, somebody else is on second. I'm like, oh, how did Dubon get on second? Did I miss it? Oh, wait, oh, the rule. And, I, you know, it's going to take me years before this finally clicks. The hitters love it. How is that scored? Okay, I actually, so um, if the runner scores, then it can, that runner gets credit for a run. The batter who knocks them in gets credit for an RBI if if appropriate. The pitcher gets credited with a run, but not an earned run. Okay, but how? But how is the when you when you're scoring uh, a runner on second? What what do you indicate for why he's on second? Oh, I don't know. Absolute ineptitude. <laughs> ineptitude. You mean like in a, in your scorebook? I've ne- I haven't ever scored. I haven't scored a. I wonder what they call it. I mean. You know, I, I wonder just like uh, kind of going forward how scoring is going to be different. I mean, we're it's already such a weird system because you're scoring, you know, you score them by the play by the position numbers. But <clears throat> these days, more than half of the time, the third baseman is in right field. And it's like, OK, so why why even bother having positions? Why not just say, OK, you're you're one, you're two, you're three and go stand wherever we tell you to go stand. Right. You're an infielder. Right. So, yeah, you see, you know, five, three ground outs, except the ground out was in right field. <laughs> like, so, you know, seeing five, three doesn't tell you anything anymore. 
Um, anyway, rant over. Uh, yeah, so it's funny. It was just this one season, this one series. The, the Giants' bats were just completely gone. I mean, they they had decent amount of offense in Texas. They'd been hitting well before that. It just seemed like all of a sudden everything caught up to them. You know, not having Longoria. Um, Belt is struggling hard since he got off the IL. His his eye is still great, but he doesn't have a hit and he is striking out at very high numbers. And it just seems like he's, it just seems like he's, he's going, he's looking for a walk, which he always does. But it, I think that he's taking more of those close pitches because he just, he doesn't want to, he doesn't really have trust in his swing yet. And he, he got, he got, he got run up twice today on called third strikes, which were strikes, really, which were really close, but they were strikes. Yeah. Yeah. He had three hits uh, the first game back, but has gone over since. Uh, just to clear that up from uh, right. what you said, Danny. Um, but yeah, there's there's no one that you could pick out in the offense right now that's playing particularly well after the after the Texas series. You could say you know yeah. Lamont Lamont Wade Jr. is playing really well. Um, you know, Yaz ripped a double today, but he struggled with runners in scoring position. I think he's something like a combined one for thirty three with runners in scoring position this season, which. Uh, from one of your main uh, sources of RBIs in the previous couple seasons. That's not uh, something you look for. And, and guys like Duggar, who, you know, Duggar was playing great, and he's been he's been real cold too. And, you know, with guys like Duggar, who were kind of quad A, you know, more minor league than major league guys, you see them come out and hit like crazy. And then as soon as they go cold, it's like, well, is this the real Duggar or is this just a normal major leaguer who going through a going through a cold stretch, which everybody does. It, it's a little harder to tell. I'm just amazed that it's mid June and Steven Duggar isn't hurt yet. So many <laughs> seasons where he came out and everybody said, this is the year Duggar's going to make it. He's really going to perform and he gets hurt you know, falling, falling down, making a spectacular catch or running into a wall or, and, and he's, he's missed what several seasons that way with early season injuries. So I'm glad to see him out there. And he has been up until the last week or so, he's been performing very well, really hitting the ball. Yeah. And and he plays good defense. Yeah. And that's something that's been nice is that the giants have been able to consistently put really good defensive outfielders, uh, really good defensive outfields out there. I mean, Duggar and Slater are both uh, have both had their really hot stretches and play really good defense. And Talkman, um, even though he's not hitting, you know he's he's got the play discipline that he can be a passable leadoff hitter and plays all three outfield positions. And my God, he's the home run, you know, he's the home run thief of the season. So, yeah, let's talk about that real quick. So two Fridays ago, Talkman robs Albert Pujols of a game-winning walk-off home run, which would have been walk-off number eight, I guess, according to uh, our numbers. And then on Friday night, uh, Juan Soto, future Albert Pujols uh, of, of the baseball world, goes oppo, and Talkman brings it back. It's just absolutely incredible yeah. that a guy can be so in the right place at the right time, <laughs> twice in a row. I mean, Talkman has, has been on the on the roster for not the whole season. They traded for him um, early on, but he's got three iconic Giants moments already. He's got the two home run robberies. And he's got the ninth inning grand slam um, first of his career. Great timing, Mike. Right. And, and it's and just, his only career on that trip. I think in that series. Yeah. Um, you know, he'd been real, he'd been struggling a lot. And then 
you know, a grand slam makes people forgive a lot of uh, a lot of kind of strikeouts and whiffs before that. Um, but you know, he's a guy whose whose contributions are kind of intermittent. But my God, like when you look back on this season, I mean, there are three of the games are Talkman games. I, sh- I should say three of the wins are, are Talkman. He he's got he's a three win above replacement player just from those three. And That's he's how batting, and he's batting one eighty. <laughs> Um, so, uh, just looking at the season, uh, looking at the next week of games, um, the giants are, uh, home against Arizona home against the Phillies. Um, that will take you to the next weekend after that. Um, as Thomas mentioned, Thomas mentioned on the last show, the giants are not leaving California for quite some time. Um, July 16th, they go to St. Louis. That's the first time they'll be out of cuts after the all-star break. Yeah, so uh, hopefully they get some home cooking. They they get some rest in their own beds. They you know find their bats um, because this was just a an uncharacteristic uh, an uncharacteristic series where they just couldn't remember how to hit. And hopefully they they kind of get it going again. Well, and Arizona's coming to town, and the Diamondbacks have a better uh, uh, have a worse chance rather of winning a game than I do about reversing the graying of my temples. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the Diamondbacks right now sit at 25 games below 500. It's June. Wow. They have a 308 win percentage. It's just, it's just amazing. But Madison Bumgarner wanted to go play there, man. Yeah. Just wanted to. Oh, I my God. I never, I never got that. He had some grudge that that never actually came out and that I'm aware of, but I, I just couldn't understand why he wanted to leave so badly. Yeah, I, I I feel like I've heard that things were pretty kind of amicable, and he just really liked the D-backs. He liked what they pitched him. Um, so you know, people talked about how like he and his wife have a ranch out there. He, you know, they, I mean, baseball players love Arizona. I'll never understand it, but they love they love golf and they love warm weather. So I love uh, Arizona. <laughs> um, I've gone to Arizona too much to love Arizona. Uh, well, we've had some we've had some delightful times there, Daniel. We have. That's true. Um, so the D-backs, we're playing the D-backs. Then they have three games uh, at home against the Phillies. Right now, the Phillies are one game above 500. Um, they're tied in the win column with the Mets, six games back in the loss column. For some reason, the Mets have not played many games. I, I, maybe they were COVID delays. Um, but the Phillies are... Uh, well, we were looking at this ahead. The Giants, okay, they're going to play the Rangers, the Nationals, the D-backs, the Phillies, the Angels. Um, the only team that we penciled there as a decent team was the Phillies. Hopefully the Giants can go a little better than 500 against the rest of these kind of uh, easier matchups. Yeah, are we going to make our uh, predictions again for the next seven-game set? Sure. Uh, I'm going to say five and two. I'm going to say they go four. I'm going to say they go three and one against the D-backs and one. Two and one against the uh, Phils. Ooh, I'm gonna say six and one. Wow, you're going more optimistic than me. I'm saying they sweep the Arizona Diamondbacks in a four-game series. They lose the first one to the Phillies, and then clean up the rest of the weekend there. All right, nice. Do you have a prediction? Me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I go. I, I'd say five and two. Okay. I'm not quite as optimistic, and five and two is a great percentage. I'm yeah. Not quite as optimistic and sunny about it as Thomas usually is. 
<laughs> hey, I just call things like I see them. You call me negative, but if that's how I see the world, that's how I see the world. No, I called you optimistic. I'm Danny's usually making fun of me for being negative. So well, I'm the one who's always like, oh, I think Matt Cain's going to turn it around. Oh, I think Tim Linscombe's going to turn it around. I oh, think I'm, I, th- I think I'm over th- on that on that front. I, I think Hillary's going to win. Yeah, I think Aaron Rowan is really going to come around and become a slugger again one of these days. Oh, God. Um, so something I'll be interested to see going forward is, uh, I mean, Sammy Long is still on the still on the roster. Have you heard anything about how they're going to use him going forward? No, I'm intrigued because he came in with a historic debut, pitched, I think, four innings, had uh, seven strikeouts, uh, only gave up a only gave up a single run. So he became an instant celebrity, but um, you know, he's got the arm. He can come out and get stretched out and pitch four, five, six innings uh, and be a starter. He can be a long reliever. Um, I think the giants are just really intrigued with his talent and looking to uh, maybe we'll throw him in to beat up on some diamondbacks. And, and there's somebody who had a really uneven career. I mean, he, he really gave up baseball after he was cut by his last team and spent a year training as an EMT trying to figure out what profession he was going to fall back on because baseball obviously wasn't it. And then when he decided to go back, he's had tremendous success, possibly taking, taking the time off from some of the injuries that were plaguing him, taking a full year off might've, might've helped him, but quite, quite an interesting story. I mean, similar, similar to the way that um, I think the, the year off helped Buster Posey, uh, you know, after the year after his hip surgery, he was still, you know, he was recovering, uh, but people kept saying, oh, next year he'll be much better. And next year was 2020 and he didn't play. And now in 2021, as a result of a lot of different things, he's having having a great season. Uh, and I think that that forced time off uh, probably helped him re- recover tremendously. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, and it's interesting. There's a piece that uh, came out on ESPN.com. A couple days ago by Tim Keown. Keown, I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, Headline is, how did the San Francisco Giants become the best team in baseball? Um, Very good piece, and it was talking a lot. Answer, they didn't. (laughs) Two days ago they were. Um, It was really interesting because it talked about kind of Farhan Zaidi's philosophy and how he and Kapler have worked great together in that capacity. And a lot of it was that these, uh, these free agents that they've picked up including including Gossman uh, last year and then keeping him around and then this year Wood and Discofani and those guys. Um, the Giants did a tremendous amount of research into these players and figured out kind of strategies for how they think, how they thought these players could kind of reclaim their careers, turn it around. And uh, they, they've been wildly successful. So, and for example, they went to Gossman and they said, look, you know, you, you throw four pitches. Two of them are great. Two of them are bad. Why are you throwing all four? Why not throw your split and your fastball 90 plus percent of the time? And, you know, and, and Gossman in this piece talks about how it kind of clicked for him. Like, oh, like, why am I throwing my bad pitches? You know, they're kind of was thinking all along, like, well, I have these pitches. I have to throw them. But as soon as he started kind of throwing his, uh, throwing his best pitches more and his worst pitches less, it, it all kind of really, really worked out well. And there's this one piece I really like uh, in it where um, Anthony Di Scofani is talking about the same thing. And he's, and so Di Scofani 
is mimicking Andrew Bailey talking to him. He says, this works, this works, this doesn't. And this, this is nasty. Keep throwing it, throw it more. And it's like, nice. yeah, like, you know, uh, he says, I dare you to throw your split 90% of the time. Like, it's just, it's, it's really interesting because we as fans from the outside, we just see these players go on the team and all of a sudden become better. And it's nice to finally kind of learn more about what actually the process is and how they got there and not just kind of, they, you know, they drank the magic Kool-Aid and now everything works better. Uh, Danny, well, I don't think you know what happens when you drink the magic Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, that was, that was the thing that came to mind when I didn't give myself enough time to plan what I was going to say. Do you have any magic Kool-Aid right now? <laughs> I, I don't have any with me now, but uh, I'm sure we could get some together. We could do another drunk episode at some point soon. But, but just um, about in terms of what you're talking about, I mean, that shows the two things. One is the value of good coaching. Someone outside the, the pitcher or whatever player is outside their, their head, uh, trying to get them to have perspective on what they do and what they do best and to do the things they do best more. But it also shows a willingness on the part of the player to be coached and to go along with what the coach is saying. I mean, in my former profession as a cinematographer, I worked a lot with actors and, and non-actors. Who and, and there are people who, who are good directors who, who, who can guide a performance, but the actor or, or whoever's being guided has to give into it. They have to be directable. And in the same way for athletes, they need to be coachable. And they need to accept what, what coaches tell them in a way. I mean, just mentioning our, our old friend, Madison Bumgarner. Um, I don't think he was, I think he had supreme confidence in himself and his stuff and what he could do. And I don't think he was particularly coachable or, or open to what, what the coaches told him about how to, what pitches to use or and how to do that. I, I could be wrong and I don't have any good evidence for that, but I always had a feeling of stubbornness and not wanting to give in to being told what to do. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the crucial elements to this story is that a lot of these guys uh, are trying to trying to find their stuff again or you know are, are not in a position to argue let's say like Kevin Gosman was a super hot prospect you know who never really delivered um Scafani is trying to get his career back on track Alex Wood is trying to get his career back on track I mean even like Scott Kazmer <laughs> is trying to get his career back on track you know Sammy Long is a guy who was driving a, an ambulance a year ago so um I would hope at least, or I would imagine that with those guys, if Andrew Bailey and Zaidi and Kapler come to them and say, here's this data that says, you know, we think that you could have more success if you change this or that, that those guys might be open to it. Whereas if you, you know, were to approach somebody who's at the top of his career and say, we can make you better, he'd say, I don't need you. What are you talking about? I, right. I'm fine right. doing the same thing I've always done. Well, certainly if they're scuffling, you'd hope that they'd be open to outside input. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, enough about 2021. Uh, let's talk about 2014. So <laughs> yes. So Finding George Washington, A Time Travel Tale by Bill Zarchi. Um, it's a story of George Washington suddenly appearing in the East Bay area uh, in 2014. Uh, why don't you give us just a little bit of explanation of the premise of the book, and then we'll We'll go forward from there. So in, in, in the book, George Washington wanders away from the winter encampment during the Revolutionary War at Valley Forge, winter of 1778. It's a very, very cold night. And somehow 
He gets swept up in some force that we don't understand, and he vanishes from Valley Forge, only, only to reappear at a dog park on the shores of San Francisco Bay in the summer of 2014. And here he meets a couple of young guys, a couple of 20-somethings from Berkeley, and they take him in. They don't really quite believe who he says he is. They don't believe he is who he says he is. Um, uh, but they turned out to be Giants fans. Their name were, names are Tim and Matt. And Tim and Matt turned George on to the Giants, among many other things. They're trying to show him the, the th things that are wonders to George of the 21st century. Remembering that George Washington died in 1799 when they were, um, it was really practically a pre-industrial era. The uh, cotton gin was in the future. The uh, steam engines had, were in very early experimental stage. There were no trains and stuff like that. So the iPhone was, games were uh, not great by that point. There's no candy right, crush. Exactly. Um, so that's that's the, the, the early premise of it. And what happens is that as Tim and Matt and George are trying to figure out what to do next, and Tim and Matt are trying to figure out, is this really George Washington? And why should I believe this guy is who he says he is? Um, they realize that the world around them is changing and it's de devolving into something very different. And there are consequences, they realize, of George being gone from Valley Forge. And they begin to wonder what, what would happen to the history of the United States if Washington never got back to Valley Forge. Would the colonial army still, still win the revolution against the British? Uh, and if they didn't, what would happen to all the other wars of liberation, liberation throughout history, starting with the French Revolution, uh, that and on, on through the different continents and different, through the centuries, what would happen to all those revolutions and wars of liberation that took their inspiration from the American, American Revolution? Um, and so the world starts to change and they realize they've got to do something to try and get George back to, back to his own time. And the question is, what happened? How did he get, get where he is? And how can we get him back? So uh, what, I, what I think you did a great job of setting up there is the, there are stakes. There are baseball stakes, there are historical stakes, there are interpersonal stakes in this book. I think um, there's a lot to dig into in this book. And I think uh, just the what you said about <laughs> the American Revolution leading into the French Revolution, they teach classes on that. You know, I took a class uh, about that in college and it's incredibly uh, crazy to think about in a book that also includes uh, trains a man 200 years out of time and two best friends uh, uh, smoking weed. <laughs> so you're projecting a little bit, but go for it. <laughs> I might be. I might so be. Once, uh, so once George arrives in, in, in Berkeley in 2014, he, he's on the run um, and, and that takes him around all sorts of different places in California and then, and then they leave California. Um, what, what was your inspiration for kind of what you wanted George to be doing with his time while he was while he was away from Valley Forge? Well, I, I had this notion when I was a kid, when I was probably 10 years old, that 10 to 12, maybe, that I was starting to learn the bare bones of technology about how cameras work, how airplanes work, how cars work. Uh, and I, and I, I developed this little mental game that I would play, which would be something to the effect of how would I explain this to George Washington? Do I, do, I, do I understand this well enough to explain it to somebody who has no context for this? And the figure that always came up was George Washington, more than any other president, just because he's so far back in antiquity. He's the only president before JFK 
Washington was the only president who didn't live any part of his life in the 1800s. And, and uh, that was my little head game. And when I started looking for a subject to write, write fiction about, because I'd written a lot of nonfiction and published a memoir, um, I, I remembered that story, <clears throat> that, no, that, that idea. And my original concept was to, that I wanted him to be here but I didn't know how I was going to get him here, and I didn't know I was going to, how I was going to get him out of his own time. I had a conversation with uh, uh, with a, a young friend uh, several when I was about a year into this, and I was saying, you know, I have this idea: Washington disappears from there, and he appears here. But how can I rationalize him disappearing? I, I you know, I hadn't really thought of it as time travel. Um, and and this fellow said to me, well, maybe in Valley Forge at that time there was a magnetic confluence. And I said, oh is that a thing? He said, it is if you write it. And I realized one of the nice things about fiction is that you can just make shit up. And that's what, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of what I, what I've enjoyed about it, but I'm not, I don't think I'm answering your question. So, so that, that certainly helps. Um, I, but there's a point in the book at which they start to think, okay, maybe they're, uh, maybe they're people looking for George. Maybe they need to um, get, get out of town or make themselves a little harder to find. And so they, travel up and down the state, um, visit Mendocino, things like that. Uh, how much of that kind of comes from your own experiences in your own life and, and certain things that, um, that led to, you know, what would George think about this? Well, one, one thing is uh, they, they visit a, uh, a pot grower in, in Mendocino who is closely modeled after someone who I know, and they embark on a project together of dragging a sailboat up, up a hill for no apparent reason other than the triumph of having it there. And my friend in Mendocino actually did that with a, with a bunch of friends. So, so in, ter in terms of that, it, 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 it does track people, people and things that I know. The other thing about it was that I originally thought of it as just kind of a comical fish out of water story um, that uh, wouldn't it be funny if we plunked George Washington down in the middle of Berkeley in the present day and watched his reaction to everything. And sure, that would be comical, but I realized I just didn't know that much about him, and I wanted to do at least be accurate and respectful. So I decided I needed to do a lot of, a lot of research. I, I learned that a lot of what I thought I knew about him was lies. He, he he did not have wooden teeth. He did not throw a silver dollar across the Potomac River, which is about a, a mile wide. He did not chop down a cherry tree and and tell his father, "I cannot tell a lie. I did it." And a lot of those apocryphal stories were made up by. A writer named Parson Weems, who published a, a, a crazy biography of Washington some years after he died, in which he made up all kinds of heroic stories about George, and they, a lot of those became gospel. So I decided I needed to do some research, and I consulted a lot of books, a lot of internet research, but I, but I, I, I didn't want to send my characters places where I hadn't been myself. So I took a long train trip uh, because I wanted wanted to know what that was like. I visited uh, Philadelphia and Valley Forge and, and uh, Washington Monument and the Smithsonian and a couple of ballparks that are, that are featured in the, in, the, uh, in the book. And I really wanted to get a, a sense of what, what, it, what it was like to be there and not just, not just make everything up. Has any, anyone from the extended George Washington universe, people who study him or people who, you know, kind of feel like they own his legacy. Has have you interacted with any of those folks about about this book? 
I have I have to a little bit. I mean, there are a lot of Facebook groups on uh, different historical figures, and there's a lot about Washington. Um, but and I've gotten some reactions to stuff that I've posted there. Probably sold a few books to people there, but it's hard to tell who's who's buying. Um, I, there are a couple of great biographies of Washington where I've contacted the authors, but I haven't heard anything back. Just trying to spark spark some interest. I'm not a historian, and it's not a historical book. And, and those people tend to be very serious about about their history, and I think I think disdain novelized history. But uh, it's something I'm still trying to trying to do, trying to connect with that with that market, trying to get into the uh, George Washington cinematic universe. Well, one, a friend of mine from from the film business who lives back in Boston uh, contacted me right after the book came out, and he said, "I am a member of the Society of Cincinnatus." And I will try and get you a reading there. Society of Cincinnati is a, a hereditary group of people who were descended from Revolutionary War soldiers, mostly headquartered in the Northeast, as you can well imagine. And they play and, baseball uh, in Ohio, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Is, are they allowed to play <laughs> baseball in Ohio? Yeah. The Cincinnati Reds. Come on, that was fine. All right. Named after the uh, the, the uh, Roman general Cincinnati. <laughs> So one of the yeah, it's named after Cincinnati because he was famous for defeating his enemies and then retiring to become a farmer, which Washington did after the revolution. He went back to Mount Vernon and resisted the impulse to make himself a king or some kind of ruler of the United States until some some years later under the new constitution when he became president. He also had a great singing voice, I've heard, or well, maybe maybe that's maybe that's a uh, Lin Manuel Miranda. Uh, uh, oh bit that he added in so there is a lot about washington out there in popular culture now more than there has been for years and one is that he's a, obviously a very prominent character in hamilton uh, but also the uh, all the papers of washington saved every piece of paper that came across his his desk in, in his entire life including receipts for food that he bought for his soldiers during the revolution receipts for teeth that he bought from slaves to to augment his own his own dentures, um, all kinds of stuff like that, like 50,000 different items. And all of Washington's papers and all the founding fathers' papers have, have been uh, available at the Library of Congress for years, but they've been digitized and they're now on, they've been online now for some years. So there's a, a rebirth of interest in the founding fathers and there are a number of new biographies of Washington in the last, I would say in the last 10 years. So one of the is, themes, one of the themes throughout your book is is the Giants that George becomes a Giants fan, but also that as the as the main characters are are traveling across the country, they're um, fleeing the people ch chasing them. No, no spoilers. Um, that they they're watching the World Series or they're watching the Giants playoffs in 2014, um, and in particular, a young man who's already gotten some airtime on this podcast, Madison Bumgarner. Um, tell us about that, and then. Uh, kind of how the time travel fits into that, or as well, much as as much as you want to spoil for the people listening. Uh, I started writing the book in 2013, and I kind of had a notion, you know, the Giants had won the World Series in 2010 and 2012, and I was kind of had a notion it wouldn't be fun to tie this in with with uh, a Giants World Series victory, and it, was, it felt too late to write it about 2012. Uh, in the summer of 2014, the first quarter of the season, the Giants were great. They were the best team in baseball. And I thought, maybe I can coordinate the action of the story with the action of 
what's happening on the field and, and in the standings. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, it turned out that that was, uh, it seemed like a great idea right at first when they were going great goods. The second and third quarters of the season, they were the worst team in baseball. And I thought, well, this is a terrible idea. I shouldn't even bother writing this. And then the last quarter, they improved a lot, but they fell short of, of winning the division. They, they lost to the Dodgers in a late, late uh, series, late uh, division clinching game in, in LA, which I actually uh, reset in San Francisco in the book. Uh, but they went, then they won the wild card and they went on to the, to, uh, the playoffs with, uh, with amazing results. And that's when I realized I really did have a possibility of trying to coordinate the action in this oddball story uh, with a great victory in, in a sports venue. And, uh, and Bumgarner in particular Bumgarner. plays a role as kind of a, a leader of men, we could say. Um, yeah. And how did, how did Washington see him? Well, Washington, Tim and Matt, the, the characters, uh, are really enamored of what's going on. And that was the season when, when Bumgarner, in, in the, in the postseason, where Bumgarner really was able to shine in an amazing way. And on, on the last game of the series, on two days rest, Bumgarner came in in relief for an inning, you know, maybe two, and then stayed for a third and a fourth and a fifth, and a, actually did six innings in, in relief, and, and the Giants won the game in the series. And in the story, Washington takes some inspiration from that, from, from Bumgarner's heroics, um, or at least the, the uh, Tim and Matt take some inspiration from it and lay that on George, you know. Uh, Tim contacts a friend who and explains about how, yeah, we're getting George to, to be inspired by, by Bumgarner. And she goes, isn't that a little far-fetched, Tim? And, it, you know, it was, sure, it was a little far-fetched, but I had, I had the feeling being new to fiction that if I made a far-fetched premise and then I labeled it as far-fetched, that it was okay. I'm not sure that I... <laughs> I think that's sure how it works. a really good idea. It, it does really say a time travel tale on the cover. So I think, uh, I don't think anyone's picking this up, confusing it for, for a Bill O'Reilly uh, uh, biography here. Wait, Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> we, we, we don't mention the, uh, the B.O.R. on this show. Kid, kid, oh, God, I might, but he's on the tops of the bestseller list of the killing Washington and yeah. killing Lincoln, killing, you know, yeah. all those things. So no, no one's going to confuse uh, uh, George Washington in front behind two baseball bats as a as a yeah. documentary uh, piece of nonfiction. Yeah, and hope and hopefully nobody's going to take too seriously a book in which George Washington takes inspiration from Madison Bumgarner. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, people, and yet people do. Some people yeah. read this book and go and take that all very seriously. And I think, wow, you really kind of missed the point here, buddy. <laughs> Well, Bill Ozarchi, this sounds like a great book. <laughs> I, I mean, I've read it. I enjoyed it. Thomas read it and enjoyed it. And uh, I think a lot of people could get a lot, a lot out of it, especially Giants fans, history fans, everything along that. So tell us how you can buy it. And uh, if you have any events or anything like that coming up that you want to plug, feel free. Um, so yeah, let us know. The book is available on that big corporate uh, website in the sky that's named after that river in South America. Um, it's, uh, it's available. It's also available from all independent booksellers. Uh, it's listed, it's available as a paperback and in all be all ebook formats, including the one from the, you know, South American jungle river company. Obviously I'm talking about Amazon. Yeah. Everything's gotta be on Amazon because they're the, 
they dominate the book market. Uh, but you can order it from any 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 independent bookseller. Um, and also, it's going to be an audio book. I've just started working with an actor friend who who is going to start recording sometime in the next week, and I hope to have an audio book available by early to mid-July, the way it's looking right now. And you just hit a big milestone, right, of, uh, of sales. Just sold my thousandth copy of the book. Wow. Which for, yeah. for independent publishing is really good. Very well, Congratulations. Very, thanks. Very humbled by all the support I've gotten from people and all the people who I don't know who actually went out and bought my book. My first well, book was a memoir, and it sold over the years. It sold dozens of copies, <laughs> and I was really hoping to do better with this. And not that sales are the be all and end all, and this will never be a money making venture. But just trying to get the book in front of as many eyeballs as possible, or earballs for the the audio book. Well, hopefully, um, you'll get the the uh, characteristic Giants Pod bump um, in sales. <laughs> So uh, if you're interested in history and Giants baseball, go check out Finding George Washington, The Time Travel Tale by Bill Zarchi, not Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and thank you for coming on the pod. Thanks. I call it a fine sci-fi blend with notes of alternate history, baseball saga, and action thriller. And a bit of cranberry at the end. Cranberry, yeah. <laughs> nice. Thanks for Some having me, guys. Oaky touch. <laughs> the hint of afterbirth. <laughs> oh God! Let's, let's make sure everyone knows that's an office reference and not yes. something that Danny uh, came up with on his own. Well, yeah. Thank you, Bill. Uh, wonderful to be here with you. I loved the book, read the book, and Danny, I'm looking forward to the next uh, month or so of Giants baseball. Well, they're spending time in California, and I am not. And uh, looking forward to texting you about the games and keeping up with everyone. Yeah, well, and we're going to try to continue doing this uh, on a semi-regular basis. I'm having fun. It's the only time I talk to Thomas. Um, so um, anyway, he's Thomas Todd, uh, and he's also Bill Zarchi. I'm Danny Zarchi. Don't look us up on social media. You won't enjoy it. You'll regret it. Um, but if you want to look up, if you want to find out about uh, finding, look, uh, finding more information about finding George Washington, you can find it on Amazon. It's also a website findinggeorgewashington.com with some information. And uh, thank you. We're Giants fans. Can we get a Go, go Giants. Giants on three? One, two, three. Go Giants! Go Giants! Go Giants.